Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, I think they were, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare. Maintain excellence. And I remember saying to myself, whew, at least it's over. And what I didn't realize is I was in the air. I woke up or I became conscious in the helicopter. And I have this memory of hearing the, the prop. And I sort of bought into the idea that I'm damaged goods. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by Q Warren Steve. Can you believe that we are right now at this moment recording episode 99? 
<laughs> that is very hard to believe. <laughs> I can't. That's been a long time. Ninety-nine man. episodes. So that means that next week, dropping on July eighth, will be our one hundredth episode. One hundred magic number. <laughs> man, we are all about plateaus on this podcast. We got one hundred <laughs> episodes. I'm working my hind end off to get to five thousand miles. <laughs> And I'm watching you. (laughs) (laughs) And Steve, honestly, we did an interview last week for our 100th episode. Our guest for the 100th episode is going to be Mike Helton. That's right. And Mike has a long background in raising more than most people think. We had a great conversation with him. Talked to him for probably about 45 minutes and got a lot of good stuff from him. Talked about his background in the sport how he started out in Bristol, Virginia, and rose through the ranks like few people ever have in the sport. He climbed the mountain, that's for sure. And Steve, I'm going to be honest with you. It was what he said at the end of our conversation that completely blew me away because it was completely unprompted. When I was setting up the interview through his assistant, I had sent her an email, and in that email, I had included some links to some of the papers that I've digitized. I didn't have any idea if he would ever even see it. I didn't know if he'd ever take the time to look through them. But when he told us what he did, it completely blew me away. Now, as a preview of our 100th episode next week, I want to play this clip of what Mike said about what Winston Cup scene meant to the sport. This was fun, and I... Rick, I got those. I got the email with all those back issues and everything. Yes. I spent four hours last <laughs> night after the race. I spent four hours going back and reading some of those, and I just yeah. cracked up because some of them—that's that, just a sign of the time, right there. Particularly the early issues when they were telling all the little stories that might have happened around the racetrack, and I just—I really enjoyed that. I, I haven't got through them all yet, but I—I I, I would encourage race fans. But I would also encourage people that work in this sport today to take time and go back and look at things like that because that's our history book. That tells how we got here. And some of those, I remember a lot of the characters that that nobody will even recognize the names of except for us and, and, and think, gosh, I remember when this happened. I remember when this guy did that. I remember when all this. I remember when LG had to get Ned Jarrett out of trouble in Atlanta. And it was just all these great <laughs> moments uh, that, that, that were written up in the Grand National scene. So thanks for sharing that with me. Well, Mike, I cannot tell you how much that means to me to hear. You see the papers behind me. That's every issue ever. And that's history that can't be lost. And we evidently have a deal in place to actually digitize them all. It's going to be very expensive, but I've got to deal with Marcus Lamonis to digitize them all. So if you have a chance to speak to him, put in a good word for us. I will. Uh, that's, that's, great. Us. That's, that's, that's great because a hundred years from now, somebody pulls that out and says, are you kidding me? Yeah. Because they're great stories. Yeah. They're, they're incredibly great stories. So Steve, what did you think when he started talking about that? Mike pretty well latched on to what we're all about. Yes. No question. Yeah. Yeah. And for him to talk about it being the history book of the sport, that is exactly verbatim the point that we have been trying to make for low these 100 episodes now. Yeah, that's what we're all about, as I said earlier. Perfect. 
for somebody of Mike's stature, who is one of the most powerful people in the sport, that meant everything to me because it validated once again, what we're trying to do. And we are getting closer and closer every day. I really do feel like that. It's still going to take time, but we're on the right track. I agree a hundred percent, Rick. And it looks like from what Mike said, other people and people of power recognize this. That makes all the difference to me is that people recognize how important this project is. Steve, in our first segment this week, we have the second installment of our interview with Ricky Craven. And Steve, of all the interview segments we've had here on the Scenebot podcast, I am going to go out on a limb and say that this week with Ricky Craven, we'll go straight into the top five best interview segments that we have ever run here on the podcast. I don't think I've ever heard a driver be more candid and honest and open about himself as we heard from Ricky. Steve, you and I talked to Ricky about that crazy crash at Talladega where he rolled up the track and into the fence and that sent him back down the track. And Steve, he said that he basically woke himself up vomiting inside his helmet. Mm. And then he was very incredibly candid about telling us about his crash at Texas. He actually told us about the nightmares that he had about being flown out of the racetrack and the helicopters. And Steve, that crash in particular, the Texas crash, cost him so much physically. And then it basically cost him his ride with Hendrick Motorsports. So that was kind of going to the top of the mountain with that ride with Hendrick Motorsports, obviously one of the best teams in the sport. And then just two or three months after joining the team, he experiences this crash at Texas and it knocks him off that perch. There is no question that if you take a job in racing, particularly as a driver, you might engage some cruel fate because of the way this sport is. And that's exactly what happened to Ricky. And Steve, I appreciate so much him being willing to trust us with his story. He didn't hold anything back. I can tell you that. He didn't hold anything back. No, he sure didn't. So that was a very, very poignant interview segment. I hope you guys will listen to it. I hope you guys enjoy it and just really take a moment to recognize what Ricky Craven went through and what kind of person he is to come back from that. I did not realize myself that Ricky was that beat up. Uh, As he told us his story, it soon came to me that he is quite the individual to respond from that, to come back at all. A lot of other competitors might not have been able to do that. And Steve, next week will be our 100th episode. We will run the interview with Mike Helton next week. But in episode 101, we will have the third and final installment of our interview with Ricky Craven. And the best part of that story is that he comes back from that crash at Texas to win at Martinsville in just a heck of a battle with Dale Jarrett. And then in 2003 at Darlington, he wins against Kurt Busch in what is widely considered to be one of the greatest finishes of all time in NASCAR. So that's the comeback story. Oh, absolutely. And Ricky's win at Darlington, that is one for the ages, that finish. I'm telling you, it's tremendous. Steve, in our second segment, we are going to go back to the May 2nd, 1996 issue of Winston Cup Scene, and that issue covered 
the Winston Select 500 at Talladega. That's the race in which Ricky crashed so badly. And that was one accident, but also Bill Elliott broke his leg in another mishap that took place on the backstretch. And Steve, that race was won by Sterling Marlin, who was becoming known as quite the restrictor plate racer. He held off Dale Jarrett by just 22 one hundredths of a second. And Steve, that was also the weekend where NASCAR decided they wanted to test Ernie Irvin's engine on a dyno. And that did not go too well. (laughs) But we're not going to go into a lot of detail about it because we did discuss it pretty extensively back during the off season in episode 63. So if you want to know the details, if you want to know the particulars, go back to episode 63 and give that a listen. And Steve, in this issue, there were also features on longtime crew chief, Bob Johnson, who was known at one time for having just a wee bit of a temper. (laughs) (laughs) You might say that. (laughs) And drum roll, please. There was also my story on Buckshot Jones. A journalistic masterpiece. (laughs) (laughs) And Steve, I would be willing to go out on a limb and say that this was probably one of the first, if not the first, national news story, magazine article, newspaper story about Buckshot. So, Listen, Randy LaJoy, if you're out there listening to this, yeah, you can blame it all on me. (laughs) (laughs) And Steve, then in the scene on the circuit section of the newspaper, there was an item about a 727 that had just dropped off a bunch of people at the Talladega airport, and it wound up blowing the windows out of the charter center. (laughs) Good night, man. That created just a wee bit of excitement there, wouldn't you think? You'd think so, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and then Della Earnhardt appeared on Oprah, and the Cranifus Haas team confirmed that it had built a Lincoln Mark Seven to go test. Are you kidding me? So John and Grady's going to be tooling around the track in a Lincoln. In a Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, I wonder what kind of stereo system it had in it. (laughs) Leather seats. (laughs) And Steve, finally, this week, we have increased Patreon support from Hallie Emery, and we have new PayPal support from Elvin Barrett. Hallie, Elvin, thank you. Thank you so much for your support. Support us on Patreon. Support us on PayPal. Support QWare. Support Brian Kelb. They have gotten us to where we are today. If you're out there and you appreciate the interviews that we do, if you appreciate the discussion that Steve and I have every week, if you appreciate the content that we're trying to provide during these trying times, these crazy times, these uncertain times, consider helping us out on Patreon and or on PayPal. So you can do that at patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast. Or if you'd rather just do a one-time show of support, you can do that at paypal.me slash the same bought podcast. Well, there's Talladega 1996. Now, can you take us through that day? What do you remember? I remember, like most racers, I remember coming into the day, third or fourth in points, 99 points out of the point lead. I'd had such a great start to the sophomore year. 
battled for the win at Rockingham, battled for the win at Darlington. And uh, just like everything is coming together. It's, you know, it just couldn't be any better. Uh, I was never real comfortable at Talladega. Uh, and uh, more so at Daytona because you really did have to work at it more. And Talladega was just so darn easy. Uh, uh, but there was a science to it that I didn't understand at the time, Steve. Um, I was running mid-pack, and, and uh, Jeff Gordon, Mark Martin got together. And I don't remember saying, all right, I got to go low. But instinctively, I turned away from the incident. And then a car came down. I think it was Waterburden. And I went over his hood and I hit the wall so hard, but I remember thinking to myself, I hit the wall upside down. And I remember saying to myself, whew, at least it's over. And what I didn't realize is I was in the air. Wow. Now, I don't remember anything after that until waking up. And when I woke up, I was vomiting had my helmet on and I was vomiting. Oh my gosh. And uh, Steve Peterson was on the hood of the car and they were cutting the roof off. And Steve Peterson, who worked for NASCAR for a long time, had a history uh, in the ASA series with Mark Martin and Ray Dillon and a really good guy. He said to me, Ricky, what hurts? And I said, I can't breathe. And he goes, small breaths, small breaths. You got to fill your lungs up again. You got to fill your lungs up. And I finally caught my breath. And I said, uh, Steve, I got something came through the seat. It's sticking in my back. I got something in my back. Oh, and yeah. he said, uh, all right, well, uh, we'll, get, we'll, we'll get the roof off. We'll get the roof almost off. We're going to get you out of here. You're good. Uh, and... He said, maybe a couple minutes later, he said, Ricky, there's nothing in the seat. Maybe, maybe a bolt came through the back of the seat uh, or something. You know, I don't remember specifically how he, 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 he dealt with it or legitimized my pain, but they got me out. Nothing came through the seat. They flew me to Birmingham, and I had a uh, compression fracture of my uh, uh, T3 and T4 vertebrae. And that, that, that sensation, uh, it wasn't the, the worst pain I've ever had, but the, the sensation was exactly as I described when I, uh, when, I, when I woke in the car. I said, Steve, I got something uh, penetrated the seat. Something came through the seat and it's sticking in my back. That's, that's what it felt like. And uh, I had a concussion, uh, but more importantly, uh, it it had it really kind of had a uh, maybe a well really the rest of the year but but several months it disrupted the whole season because I was racing in pain I wasn't sleeping uh, I I just wasn't effective after that it took me a long time. Well, in the middle of all that, at some point, a conversation gets started with Hendrick Motorsports, and you've talked about your relationship with Jeff Gordon in the Bush Series and the relationship with DuPont and everything. Is that kind of what opened the door at Hendrick, your relationship with Jeff? 
Well, what actually opened the door was I had such a strong relationship with Larry Hedrick. And he offered me essentially a lifetime contract. I know that sounds like a stretch, but you can go back and look. It really existed. And uh, in large part, because we had such an incredible start to my sophomore year, we won rookie of the year in 95. We had a great start in 96. And I think we both believe that the sky's the limit. Um, early in that year, we recruited some talent from up north. Tommy Baldwin was among them. And Tommy Baldwin came down, joined us, and he, and he had a very, very big impact, positive impact, influence on the team. And Tommy had left to go start a program for Tony Stewart and Harry Rainier, like a 15-race Bush Grand National opportunity. And Tony was just dabbling with NASCAR. And uh, there were a few other things that happened. And I, so I never signed a contract. But uh, I heard about three or four weeks later that Schrader was leaving, and I crossed paths with Ray Evernham, who I was also uh, close friends with, in the garage area of Bristol Motor Speedway. And I said, uh, I said something, and he said, uh, are you available? And I said, I don't know. On the next, that was on a, I think that was a Saturday night race at Bristol. Yeah, you know, late summer. So, anyway, I, uh, the on Monday, the following Monday, I got a call from Rick Hendrick, and and then it, it started this cascade of of sequence of events, and it which ultimately led to me announcing going to Hendrick Motorsports, uh, but saying goodbye to a close friend and somebody who'd done a lot for me. And it was a very very uncomfortable time and very awkward time because. Uh, you know, to some degree, I, I to some degree, I, I, I knew that I let some people down with the 41 team. Uh, and on the other hand, I also remembered a lot of advice I had gotten from people I looked up to, which was, you know, you got to, you got to, you got to take advantage of opportunity. And, and this was an opportunity I really didn't want to pass on. All right. The Daytona 500, Jeff Gordon wins, Terry Bonnie is second. You are third. One, two, three, finish for Hendrick. I mean, there's champagne, victory lane, and everything. Was that your I finally made it moment? I didn't feel that way, but I didn't feel like, all right, I finally made it. But I remember when the race was over, gathering in the driver compound and come to the realization that I just finished third in the Daytona 500, and it was only my third attempt. And feeling as though, okay, um, I think I really got a good chance at this. I think that that this is all materializing as I had hoped. And um, the first two years were, you know, there were some challenges, like with the injury at Talladega, very disruptive. But but we really were performing. And then to come out of the gate, my debut with Hendrick Motorsports, third in the Daytona 500. Um, Maybe you're right, Steve. I don't. I don't remember actually. You know, having that moment where I said, "Yeah, I, I, all right, I've made it." But uh, I, I suppose I did have that feeling like I was no longer looking over my shoulder. You know, it's like, okay, now I've, I've, I've sort of legitimized my existence. Maybe that was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> 
Ricky, the inaugural Texas Winston Cup race, everybody's complaining about the racetrack, and it winds up biting you pretty hard in practice. What yeah. is your earliest memory after the accident? Uh, it was brutal. Talladega, I described to you, and everybody watches Talladega to this day because it's on YouTube, and they say, how did he survive? And the the fact of the matter is, uh, I wouldn't want to do it again. Uh, but I, I, I would, I would let that happen to, you know, two or three times, uh, before I ever experienced anything like Texas. And here's why. And by the way, I don't think there's any footage of Texas, but, uh, I was the fastest car early in practice. And I remember being wide open through one and two, but I had to lift in three and four. And somebody uh, jumped to the top, and I think it was Ricky Rudd, and Andy Graves was my crew chief, and I was, you know, we had a, a reasonable start to the uh, 97 season, but I said, tape it up. And uh, it was really too early for that. That's the only part of this that I can be, uh, that I can be subjective toward and say, I, I, I made a mistake, or, you know, I, I, I really shouldn't have done that. Uh, because the part where it was too early to be making a qualifying run. And uh, I do remember going through one and two wide open, and I, and, I, and I narrowly got off turn two without scraping the wall. So I was loose. Okay? And uh, I'm going down the back stretch, and I was like, I got to make a little wider entry into the corner. And uh, I don't remember anything after that except – and sometimes this is this is weird. It's not. I don't think it's PTSD or. But I've had dreams uh, since. I wake up because I hear this uh, this repetitive sound, and uh, I just wake up because I have this repetitive sound and go. And I believe what it is is that uh, on the way to Parkland Hospital, uh, they flew me. Uh, from the racetrack, right from the front stretch to Parkland Hospital in Dallas-Fort Worth, I woke up or I became conscious in the helicopter. And I have this memory of hearing the, the prop, you know, oh, the helicopter. Wow. And, uh, and then it was just uh, like, a, I say a dream, maybe more of a nightmare. Um, I had to sign my next of kin because I had no family with me. Uh, my vision was completely blurred, so I couldn't see anything. I had blood coming from my ear, which, uh, by the grace of God, it wasn't a basal skull fracture, but I had a pretty bad concussion. But uh, it, uh, I had a cut inside my ear, probably from the impact and the ear mold, and. Uh, I was beaten up. I had a fractured scapula, and but you know that uh, I have to say that that really, really disrupted my career. I uh, there was a period of about three or four weeks where I just really didn't care if I ever drove again because uh, I was in so much pain and my head hurt so bad uh, even after I was released from the hospital. So uh, there was a certain immunity that existed before that wreck that no longer existed. Wow. In other words, I, I, I never ever thought about getting hurt in a race car, uh, probably before my Talladega wreck. 
And then after my Talladega wreck, uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a warped way of thinking, but this, I think, is how a driver has to think. After my Talladega wreck, because it was so spectacular, you know, it looked like it was so spectacular, I almost, my confidence actually almost increased from that, I, uh, at least in terms of my invincibility, because I said, well, hell, if I can survive that, I can survive anything. And what I didn't realize is that I hadn't survived the worst. The reason Texas hurt so bad, or the reason it was uh, so detrimental to me, is that I hit concrete at 180 miles an hour, and that abrupt stop, uh, you know, just it, it, it took a little bit of my life. You know, like I don't, there's a part of it I don't remember, but I also feel like very candidly that I was never as fast after that as I was before. You know, I I, I felt like there was, you know. If I go back to 1991, from 1991 to that point in 97, there were times where I had uh, brilliant speed and, you know, just seat of the pants speed. Uh, after the Texas wreck, I felt like I, was a, I had to be a much more calculated driver. And I didn't compete with that blatant disregard that I think you have to have to be an ex, you know, an ex incredible or, a, or an outstanding driver. I don't know if I ever would have been an outstanding cup driver. Um, but, I, but I can truthfully say that I didn't feel like I was an outstanding cup driver after the 97 season. Technically, you missed only a couple of braces. So what were you feeling once you got back in a car? I was compromised. Yeah, I came back. I think uh, the first race back, we qualified on the front row of the Coke 600. We lead the race a few times. We had a rear gear fail. But I remember battling Ernie Irvin for the lead, thinking that we could win this Coke 600. Uh, but then the next week, I remember feeling awful and uh, not feeling good in the car. And then I go three or four weeks and just be miserable. And uh, I think what, what really what caught up with me is that I'd had uh, several concussions over a 12-month period. And I had, I think, four concussions in a row leading up to uh, Texas. You know, it's, it's so uh, there's a price for everything. And I think that I was paying that and in, in that uh, I was very insecure. I'm driving the Bud car for Rick Hendrick. There's no damn way I'm going to admit to anybody that I'm compromised because I'm, I'm done. Now, having said that, if you cross paths with Jerry Punch, uh, I did go to one person. I don't know if I've ever really shared this. I think I've shared it with a few people since, probably, probably with Rick. But Jerry Punch will tell you that I uh, was struggling on one of the tracks and I said, you got a minute? And we went and sat in the rental car. And I said, Jerry, my, uh, since my wreck, if I get a vibration in the car, my eyes, you know, it's like uh, I, I have a hard time seeing. I cannot uh, lock on to anything. And uh, I never talked to him about it again. I almost regretted I said that to him because I put him in an awkward position. And uh, the rest of 97 was hit or miss. And uh, 
and then uh, and then it kind of all came to the forefront at the beginning of '98. Yeah, you ran four races, I think, in 1998. Then made the decision to step out of the car. Now, how difficult was that for you? Well, I remember coming back from the University of North Carolina and being part of that medical facility with Dr. Tani, and they gave me these tests and they put me in a put me in a, like a gyro and they blew air in my ear. First, my left ear, my right ear, and I was fine with one. And then the uh, they switched ears and I started to vomit and. Uh, they diagnosed me with a vestibular weakness and I was a hundred percent in one ear and I was about 42% in the other ear. And I hadn't had a wreck in 1998, those first four races. There was no, there was nothing that had happened that would have suggested that I injured my, it was a residual of all what we went through in 97. Uh, and I, what people don't know is that uh, when I, the first person I called was Rick Hendrick, and uh, that was an, an emotional discussion that he and I had. Uh, he handled the, the way he handles everything, you know, with a lot of grace. Uh, almost immediately, I sold my airplane. I began to make adjustments in my life because I really – you know, maybe I overreacted, but I really didn't think I was going to be back in cup racing. Ricky, your first race back, you do sit on the pole at New Hampshire, and you do qualify sixth at Indy. But again, things just aren't clicking, and you part ways with Hendrick Motorsports later that year. I can't even begin to imagine how difficult a position that must have been for you. Mm. You know, I wasn't strong enough to admit it then, uh, but I can I can tell you unequivocally that uh, at that point, Rick, my greatest challenge was not the physical element; uh, it was it was the mental side. Um, I had I had just listened to so many opinions, and uh, and I sort of bought into the idea that you know I'm. I'm damaged goods and that uh, my best days were behind me. Uh, so, you know, it, it, uh, it was, it was not the environment when I came back that I had signed into in the beginning of 97 In the beginning of 97, my confidence was sky high and there was so much enthusiasm. And most of the people at Hendrick Motorsports, at least it felt almost, you know, universally that everybody wanted me there. And that wasn't the case when I came back. Uh, And I understand it. I even understood it then, but I I wasn't comfortable with it. Um, You have people working, you know, all day and night working so hard because they have a love for the sport. And I think in some of the crew members' minds, they're like, well, okay, we're getting a driver back, but is, you know, is he 100%? Wow. And on the other side of the complex is a team, you know, the 2014 that is just lighting it up. And who wouldn't be envious of that? And 
Uh, and there's, there's so many of those things that, uh, that I think weighed on me, and I just was not equipped to deal with it. I really wasn't. I, uh, uh, there are a lot of good people that I've been associated with in my life and racing, a lot of good people. I didn't, uh, I didn't acknowledge that back then uh, the way I do now because when you're in the moment and to some degree you're back on your heels and you're sort of fighting for your existence, you don't always see the good in the people. You see, uh, you become very defensive and you say, you know, what's, what's his objective? Is his objective to help me or is his objective to, just to uh, appease me and just get through this? And to compete with that frame of mind, uh, you're destined to fail. So the, the rest of 98 was, uh, you know, I, I, I think it was borrowed time. Hello, Scene Vault Podcast listeners. This is Eric Quinn from QWare. Again, I just want to say thank you for listening to the Scene Vault Podcast, Rick and Steve, and the wonderful interviews they've been doing with the folks from NASCAR history, the drivers, the crew chiefs, the people that made it all happen over the years. At QWare, we are very proud to be a part of this podcast and being able to bring it to you, especially at a time when you have limited entertainment options. We hope that you're enjoying it, and we hope that you get a chance to check us out at QWareCMMS.com. QWare is one of the most powerful, simple-to-use, computerized maintenance management systems on the market for your facility's maintenance team. Whatever your business, check us out, QWareCMMS.com. We're here to help your team maintain excellence. From all of us at QWare, we hope that you and your family stay safe and healthy. Now let's get back to the podcast. Thanks for listening. Steve, you and I have heard a lot of different accounts from a lot of different drivers about a lot of different crashes since we started doing this podcast almost two years ago now. I think back to Ricky Rudd's crash in the 1984 Bush Clash that we discussed all the way back in episode 20. Well, you should have seen it that right from my side. And with Bud Moore in episode nine. He said, I can't see. I can't keep my eyes open. So I went and got me some cellophane tape, and I taped his eyes open. He went back out, and he run good. Lyndon Amick talked about a couple of different crashes in episode 37. And I'm like Days of Thunder. I'm just going to put the hammer down, and I'm going to come out the other side. I'm spinning. Almost, almost flipped <laughs> over, but I'm spinning down the track going, I'm done. In episode 50, Dale Earnhardt Jr. talked about crashing during one of his very first tests in a Bush Series car. I got out of the car and I sat down on the ground with my, my face in my hands thinking, well, that's the end of my future. In episode 65, there was Randy LaJoy's crash at Daytona during his qualifying race for the 1984 Daytona 500. Pulled my belt tight and I'm watching and all of a sudden the fence is gone and I'm seeing sky. But, Steve, to hear Ricky Craven go through the details of his Talladega accident, it really drove home to me just how serious this sport can be at times. He basically, as I mentioned in the intro, he basically woke himself up, thrown up inside his helmet. And then to hear about his exchanges with Steve Peterson, who was the NASCAR official on scene, and Steve Peterson was basically talking him through 
what was taking place. Well, it was clear that Ricky had no idea what happened. He was, he was sick to his stomach, he was disoriented, and it was a good thing that Steve Peterson was there to give him something of a calming influence by letting him know step-by-step step what was happening. He had had the wind knocked out of him, so Steve kept telling him to take short, deep breaths to kind of fill his lungs back up. And then once Ricky was able to catch his breath, he told Steve that something had come through the seat because yeah. he felt this pain in his back. Right. And that turned out to be a compression fracture of a couple of his vertebra in his back. And then, of course, for the rest of the 1996 season, he was racing in pain and he was not sleeping and he was really kind of struggling to put the pieces back together after this accident. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, being in pain and driving, continuing to drive just shows you how determined Ricky was to stay in that car and do his job through all that pain. He had just five top 20 finishes the rest of the year, including a 19th in Talladega summer race, and then a fifth at Charlotte. And Steve, despite all that, Ricky said that Larry Hedrick, his car owner at the time, offered him what amounted to a lifetime contract. He didn't sign it. So take that, Bill Gardner. <laughs> <laughs> and less than a month later, he hears that Ken Schrader might be leaving Hendrick Motorsports. And he runs into Ray Evernham during the Bristol night race weekend. They talk a little bit, and Ray asks Ricky, if he's available for the next season. So that was an impromptu conversation that really meant a lot to Ricky. I think that Ray recognized that nothing else, Ricky had a lot of determination because if you look at his finishes, not so good. But remember, he was driving in pain. And Ray probably realized that and said, hey, we may have something here. Well, Steve, that is during the Bristol night race weekend. And then Monday, Rick Hendrick calls him. They talk, he signs contract, and the rest of the season is probably a little awkward with Larry Hedrick so, yeah, I would and the rest so. of that team. So uh, a little bit of a lame duck situation there. But I think Larry did realize that if Ricky had an opportunity to race with Rick Hendrick, I don't think Larry would stand in his way. So Ricky does make the move from Hedrick Motorsports to Hendrick Motorsports. And Steve, his first race with the team right out of the box, he finishes third in the Daytona 500 behind new teammates, Jeff Gordon and Terry Labonte. That's a one, two, three finish for Rick Hendrick. And they're spraying champagne in Victory Lane. And I always think back to Derek Cope's line about being able to remember the warmth of the sun on his face in the winter's circle after winning the 1990 Daytona 500. So that's probably a, a watershed moment for Ricky Craven because to me, that would be the moment that let me know that I had arrived in the sport. Yeah, I think uh, Ricky would agree with you on that. And I also think that what was interesting was that all three of them were in victory lane spraying that champagne. Now, in Formula One, you always see the podium finish, right? Top yes. three guys are always in victory lane. NASCAR, that doesn't happen. No. But this time, this time, it was an obvious situation for all three of them to be in there because they were all three Hendrick drivers and they had that one, two, three finish for Hendrick Motorsports. Don't see a cover of that national scene with three guys in victory lane very often. <laughs> <laughs> and Steve, he's driving for Hendrick Motorsports. He has superior sponsorship from Budweiser. 
so everything's clicking. And then they go to Texas for the first Winston Cup race there. And Steve, there are several accidents in practice and qualifying and then in the race itself, including one going into turn one on the first lap of the race. But Steve, Ricky was very badly injured during practice for that event. Practice was a mess. I remember several cars crashing during practice. As I recall, they were somewhat concerned about the configuration of the track going into and out of the fourth turn. That seemed to be the place where most of the accidents happened, and they couldn't quite figure out how to get through there. Well, Steve, that's exactly where Ricky's accident took place. And Steve, this really stuck with me. Ricky said that he would have experienced the Talladega crash two or three times over rather than go through what he experienced in the Texas accident. Now, that was a pretty powerful statement to make. And this crash fractured Ricky's right shoulder blade. It broke at least a couple of ribs. Those kinds of things, those things heal up pretty easily. But it also left him with a severe concussion. And that is the difference in this wreck and the Talladega rest. A concussion can be a very dangerous thing. I don't think I will ever, ever, ever forget Ricky talking about his dream of hearing the rotor blades of the life flight helicopter taking him out of the racetrack. Sensory memory is so strong. Very strong. Absolutely. And, you know, again, I commend Ricky for telling us that, you know, he didn't have to say that. That was a pretty private moment. Sure. Like you say, I think that took a lot for him to be able to share and admit. So I, again, I, that meant a lot to me that he had that much confidence in us to tell us that. So Steve, here's another thing about the accident that I did not know. I didn't know that Ricky had been flown to Parkland hospital in Dallas. And that's where JFK was taken after he was shot in Dallas. Steve Wade, where were you when you heard that JFK had been assassinated? I was in junior high gym class. And I remember, uh, the teacher who was a coach, he came in and he called off this basketball game we were playing. He told us that the president had been shot and class is over. As a matter of fact, school was over that day and uh, everybody went home. This accident at Texas, it did derail Ricky's career and it derailed Ricky's career in a big way. And he even admitted that for two or three weeks, he wondered if he even wanted to drive again. And Steve, that would be a normal reaction for most. Oh, yeah. Yeah. With Ricky saying he didn't know if he ever wanted to drive again. Come on. What person wouldn't feel that way after suffering the types of accidents that Ricky had? I mean, that's that's demoralizing. No question. Steve, he talked about this immunity that had existed for him where he could kind of compartmentalize the danger of the sport. And then all of a sudden that sense of invincibility was no longer there. It's one thing to face the physical limitations that were caused by that accident. The bones will heal back. The headache will hopefully go away, but that mental roadblock, I think would be one of the toughest obstacles to overcome. I agree with you because if you're a race driver and you have this type of accident more than one debilitates you so badly, you've got to real, you got to have some doubt and doubt comes from the mind, not a broken bone. And that's exactly, I think the position Ricky found himself. 
he had been able to rationalize his Talladega wreck by telling himself, if I can get through that, I can get through anything because the accident on YouTube has got thousands of views. It is a spectacular accident. The photos of it are just unreal, but he made it through that crash in relatively good shape. He was able to continue racing. But the Texas accident, when that happened, we've already discussed this a little bit. That put him in a different frame of mind because he had to be thinking after that, maybe I can't get through anything. Well, one thing that was kind of telling to me was how Ricky said that he felt like he was never as fast after the Texas accident as he had been before. He said that he became a much more calculating driver. And Steve, I'll be honest with you. I don't know that that wasn't a good thing in the long run because I kind of compare it to a pitcher in baseball who has thrown smoke his entire career, throws a hundred miles an hour and then suffers an arm injury of some sort and then has to relearn how to compete and becomes more of a finesse pitcher afterwards. So he's pitching instead of just throwing. I think a lot of baseball players that arm injuries became finesse pitchers after they were guys throwing smoke earlier. They had to, Rick, because they could not perform in the way that they used to. So they had to adapt. Well, I think race drivers are pretty much the same thing, especially a driver that goes through what Ricky went through, those two horrible accidents. Mindset had to change somewhat. 1998, he runs the first four races of the year and he steps out of the car he comes back later in the season and it's not much better if at all and he leaves Hendrick Motorsports for good imagine what that must have been like after the promise of how that deal with Hendrick Motorsports started out to see it all vanish it it's emotional for me just talking about it didn't happen to me happened to Ricky Craven but to think about what he experienced in the the just the absolute roller coaster of emotions You have to feel for the guy. Well, you have to consider what I said earlier. Racing can be a very cruel fate. And it was just that for Ricky Craven at this point in his career. And Steve, the bottom line is that he did afterwards wonder if he was damaged goods. Yeah. And he did wonder where his career was going to go from there. And you you can understand that. Absolutely, you can understand that. And Steve, that's why I think the fact that he was able to come back from that and win at Martinsville in that great finish with Del Jarrett, and then after that, go to Darlington and have one of the all-time greatest finishes in NASCAR history with Kurt Busch, that is the story. That's the Rocky Balboa moment. That says a lot about Ricky Craven's character to come back and do what he did when earlier He was thinking his career might be over. Steve, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. This week we had t-shirts from Dick Trickle, who's a racing tire, we had a snake bit monster truck t-shirt. Still haven't come up with a maximum destruction one, so I, I don't know about that. But we also had a Jeff Burton Sitgo number 99 Roush Racing t-shirt, a Christian Fittipaldi IndyCar t-shirt, a NASCAR Super Trucks t-shirt, 
a Talladega Die Hard 500 T-shirt. We, <laughs> I could go on. I mean, man, it's awesome stuff that he is able to come up with. So follow Brian Kelp on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. That's SpeedwayTSJ.ETSY.com. Steve, the May 2nd, 1996 issue of Winston Cup Scene carried coverage of the Winston Select 500 at Talladega. Lap 78, Bill Elliott gets sideways coming off turn two. And his car, just the images of that car, his car almost seems to float in the air a little bit. Doesn't actually turn over, but it comes down really hard on its side. And Brian Hallman, who was one of our freelance photographers, was on the backstretch. He's also one of our Zoom call regulars. He got a series of brilliant photographs of that accident. That car is just hanging there in the air. But the impact of it coming back down and hitting the ground actually broke Bill's left femur. Yeah, you know, an accident like that, to those of us up in the press box, doesn't look nearly as bad as cars barrel rolling, which they did Talladega often. And so we thought Bill was just going to climb out and walk away, probably not you know, injured because so many guys who rolled their cars got up and they were fine. But Bill, he wasn't, he wasn't fine by any stretch of imagination. Bill actually wound up missing some time for the first time in his career after that accident. I believe he missed like five races. Something like that. that. Yeah. Yeah, I came back at Daytona in the summer. So that was a big time accident for him. Bill had pitted on lap 63 during the caution. And when it wasn't the best of the pit stops, Bill had to start back in the pack a little bit. And his crew chief, Mike Beam, said afterwards, we put him in that situation. We had a bad pit stop and we put him there. I'm pretty upset about it. So that's a crew chief taking the weight of the world on his shoulders and admitting that his guys made a little bit of a mistake and put their driver in a bad situation. So that was a pretty heavy load for Mike Beam to be carrying. And that indicates clearly that racing is a team sport. You can't blame everything on the driver, although we always do <laughs> when something happens on the track. But this is a clear indication of, of how a pit crew, the team members, when they don't do things properly, puts their driver in a bad spot. Mike continued and said, I don't know what to feel. I've never felt like this. The last time we went through something like this was Atlanta in 1990, and that was referring to the accident on pit road that cost Mike Rich his life. You get so close to people, and it's just amazing the emotions you run through. You try to be, I don't know, tough about it, but still you feel them. You're almost numb. You don't know what to feel, but he's going to be just fine. Bill, he's tough. That was certainly a bad day for Mike and Bill and the entire team, no question about it. But, you know, as Mike said, Bill was tough and he'd be back, and that's exactly what happened. Now, Ricky's accident took place on lap 130 when Jeff Gordon and Mark Martin got together going into turn one. In all, 14 cars were involved in the accident, and our photographer who was on the scene 
David Schenck nailed that accident, Steve. The photos that David got are just incredible. And if those shots weren't scary enough, Phil Cavelli, who is our photo editor, he got one of Ernie Irvin's Robert Yates racing Ford in the garage. And Steve, it looks like the roof of that car looks like somebody had actually tried to peel it open with a <laughs> rusty can opener from where Ricky had actually rolled over him. Yeah, the photographers on Monday were really on top of their game, but I will say this, Rick, there was hardly a race during my time at scene. There was hardly a race where the photographers were not at the top of their game. So the photos in this issue are just incredible. You did the sidebar on the crash, and in it, Larry Hedrick said, Ricky said his back hurts, and there's a bruise on his arm. He's coherent, but he feels rotten, as you can well imagine. Yeah, that would be a pretty bad day at the office. I think so. (laughs) That would be a really bad day at the office. Now, Mark Martin said, Gordon got pinched into the wall, which wound up turning me. I had a car on the inside pushing me up, and I think that was actually Ricky Craven. And Gordon was just a little bit on the outside of me. At that point, there wasn't anything that Jeff could do, hardly at all, and there wasn't anything I could do at all. The wreck was just on. That's all. And that's Talladega for you. Racing in big packs, one little mistake is all it takes. This is what Jeff Gordon had to say. It's a shame that happened. I hated to get into Mark. Mark and I got together, and we just started wrecking. He didn't have any room on the inside of him. It was just kind of a squeeze play. It's one of the scariest feelings you can imagine. Every time I opened my eyes, I got hit. So I just closed my eyes. I'd be sliding (laughs) along, and you think it's going to stop, and then boom, someone else would hit you. It's the first time I've been in a wreck like that, and it wasn't fun. We were all going for one position. That's my point. All of them going for one position is one thing, but when you do that on the track, it only takes a small mistake to make things turn into a disaster. The race came down to Starlin Marlin and Del Jarrett battling it out basically by themselves with third place Del Earnhardt at the head of a line of cars, maybe 10, 20 car lengths back. It wound up, Starlin Marlin won the race, held him off by 22 one hundredths of a second. And this was the fifth win of Starlin's Winston Cup career, the fourth on a restrictor plate track. He had won the 1994-1995 Daytona 500s, and this was his second win in a row at Talladega. Now, Steve, what made Starlin such a great restrictor plate racer? Well, first of all, he loved those races, just like Buddy Baker did. Buddy Baker was known as a super speedway ace during his day, and Sterling Marlin took over that role during this particular time. He had the car and the engine to do oh, it. Oh, the engine. Yes, yeah. sir. Yeah. <laughs> he had Runt Pittman, baby. <laughs> Case closed. After the race, Sterling said that his Morgan McClure Motorsports Chevrolet was the best car he had ever driven. And what's more, Runt Pittman had stayed home from Martinsville the week before to work on the Talladega engine. Now, um, I just have this that? image. I just have this image of Runt Pittman in the laboratory and the white coat and the toothpick hanging out of his mouth. He's like a mad scientist. I was going to say, it's Dr. Frankenstein in the first Frankenstein movie. <laughs> Looks over his engine and goes, it's alive, it's alive. 
after winning the two previous Daytona 500, Sterling had actually fallen out of the 1996 500 after completing only 81 laps with a bad engine. He was credited with a 40th place finish, which was not good enough for that team at that time on that kind of restricted plate track. Well, obviously something went wrong, very wrong. That's why Runt was going back to work instead of going to Martinsville. And Sterling said, we probably tested about 1,000 or 1,200 miles for this race. We made sure we weren't going to have the same problems we had with the engine at Daytona. And he didn't have any problems with this engine this day. No, he didn't. And that's what you call overcoming adversity with hard work. Steve, in this issue, there was a feature story written by Godwin Kelly on Bob Johnson, who was serving as Mike Wallace's crew chief for car owner Junie Dunleavy at the time. Now, after the 1994 season, he had gone to the doctor and was told that he was basically a heart attack waiting to happen. The primary vein in his chest that sent blood to his heart was almost completely blocked. And he was told to avoid stress and fatty foods. Now, fatty foods is one thing, but Bob Johnson had always been known as a guy who had a little bit of a temper, and he also evidently had a little bit of suitcase Jake in him. Bob had actually started his career up in the Northeast with Ron Bouchard on the Modified Tour, and then he moved with Ron down south to the Race Hill Farms team and was working there when Ron took that just amazing win at Talladega in 1981. Bob left that team, went back north, came back, worked for Junior for a year, then helped Bob Webkin get that team up to speed, moved over to DKRX team with Ernie Irvin as driver. 1990, he worked for the Wood Brothers. Then he went to Richard Jackson's team. Then he went to Kel Yarbrough Motorsports. Then to Dick Moroso's team. Then a Bush Series team that Richard Petty was fielding for Rodney Combs. Then back to Junie Dunleavy's team <laughs> when this story was written. Now, his racing reference page lists 35 different entries over the course of a 16-year career. Uh, Rick, can I ask you to repeat that, please? I couldn't follow it. <laughs> He went up north, he came back, he went back up north, and he came back. (laughs) That's good enough. Suitcase Bob. Bob said in this story, some days it can still get to you. I try not to let it. It doesn't do any good if you do. I'm a lot better at a little older age than I used to be. I used to be kind of a terror when I was in my late 20s and early 30s when things didn't go right. You live and learn as you get older. It doesn't pay anything to get upset. Just heartburn, mostly. (laughs) Well, I don't know how calm Bob became in his later years. Steve, back in the September 25th, 1980 issue of Grand National Scene, there are a couple of photos of Bob on the inside cover arguing with a NASCAR official. Now, look, we ran a lot of different pictures of people arguing with NASCAR officials. That's just the nature of the beast. But what makes these photos a little bit more out of the ordinary is the fact that Bob doesn't have a shirt on <laughs> You're kidding. in either of these photos. So I don't know the circumstances. I don't know if it somehow got torn off of him or if he tore it off himself or if this was after the race and he's changing clothes and then saw the official. I don't know. But the <laughs> fact is... He's giving him down the road, and he ain't got a shirt on, and the look on his face, yeah, Bob wasn't too happy. 
Well, I've seen Bob in a rage more than once, but he was always closed. <laughs> I don't know where this stuff came around. Steve, another feature story that ran in this issue, this kid, Roy Jones. Oh. I mean, Buckshot. Okay. <laughs> it was written by yours truly. It basically centered on the help that Buckshot was getting from the Pearson family, crew chief Ricky Pearson and his dad, David, and also Eddie was working on the team at that time, I believe. So he had a lot of help from the Pearson clan. Well, I'll tell you what, if you wanted to get help in racing, the Pearson clan is a darn good place to go. David said in this story, he's still a rookie. He's just now learning and he's still got a lot to learn. But the biggest thing I think really is he just tries too hard at times. Of course, he's a little bit gun shy right now because he's tore up a few cars. Gun shy, buckshot. I I got it. I got it. You think that was intentional? No, I don't think it was. Anyway. <laughs> I know it wasn't. <laughs> Anytime you get that way, you've got that on your mind. After that, you're going to be too careful. He's got plenty of talent there. He just needs more experience. And David was spot on as far as I'm concerned. I think you recognize that while you're writing the story. Steve, I actually texted a picture of the story to Buckshot yesterday. And <laughs> He texted me back and he said that he actually has this story framed and hanging up in his house. Well, how about that? <laughs> now, isn't that just special? <laughs> <laughs> in the scene on the circuit section, a group of crew members, team owners, and media members arrived at the Talladega airport on board a Boeing 727 on the morning of the race. And when the plane started to taxi away from the gate, its engine blast shattered the windows of the charter center and it sent glass flying through the lobby. Pieces of glass as large as two feet wide were blown maybe 50 feet across the lobby. There was a four-wheeler there. It got blown 40 feet away. And Steve, nobody was hurt. That's absolutely amazing. Very fortunate, by the way, and glad nobody was, but that's amazing. One of our freelance photographers, Eric Vaughn, was on board that flight, and he evidently saw what was about to happen, and he pushed Joe Gibbs back into the bathroom that he was about to exit. And Joe said in the news story, I didn't know if it was a hurricane or what. Then I thought a plane had crashed into the airport. <laughs> the blast was pulling the ceiling tiles down on top of me. I got hit by the door from guys diving to get away from the glass. That must have been just utter chaos. That's right, out of, that's right out of a Hollywood disaster movie. I mean, telling you, and I'm just flabbergasted that nobody was hurt. I was pretty notorious for not liking to fly when I was at scene, but that had to do when we were actually in fly. I, yeah, I didn't know the pilot, so I didn't know what kind of day he was having. So I, I got <laughs> nervous not being able to be in control of that plane. And once I was back on the ground, I was fine. Now I don't know what would have happened if I had been in that lobby when all that happened. It's one thing to be concerned about being in flight. It's another thing to actually have to still be concerned when you're back on the ground again. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in a situation like this, you probably would think that you're under attack, you know? <laughs> the airport's manager said that there had been a miscommunication between the ramp agent assigned to park the plane and the pilot, 
And that caused the pilot to have to turn the plane around to leave the ramp. And the airport manager said, I didn't think it would blow the windows out, but I knew that it would be a lot of thrust. You think? Um, would you think so? Yeah. <laughs> a lot. <Woo. laughs> I didn't think it would blow the windows out. Well, let's not test it out and see. <laughs> this ain't Mythbusters, you know. <laughs> Steve, another item that ran in the news section, Dale Earnhardt was in Chicago the week before the race to tape an appearance on Oprah for a Meet Your Favorite Sports Celebrity segment. Tom Martin had been paralyzed in an automobile accident at the age of 16, and he wound up graduating high school on time and was in college with a 4.0 GPA in pre-med classes. And so his mom rode into Oprah and... One thing led to another, and Del Earnhardt is on the Oprah show. Listen, I can see Del Earnhardt being on a hunting show, an outdoor show, but on Oprah, bearing his soul to millions and millions of viewers, I, yeah, that one just doesn't seem to connect for me. No, I can understand that, but uh, Dale did a bunch of television that you wouldn't expect. He was on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno one time, and they raced riding lawnmowers. Michael Cranifus confirmed that his team, which was filled in Fords for John Andretti at the time, he confirmed that they had actually built a Lincoln Mark 7 for John to go test. Now, Michael said in this news item, we're just trying to see if we can come up with a better car. We have got to concede that our team is not at the top with Ford, and we often don't get the benefits others receive. So we have to create our own deal if it works. Now, John did test the car at Charlotte the next week, but it never actually ran in a race. Well, nor did anybody ever expect it to. Hi, I'm Kirk Shelmerdine, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Y'all be careful going home. Use your turn signal, wear your seatbelts, and get the hell out of the left lane! Steve, here's my weekly update in my 24 hours of Lamona's challenge. <laughs> okay. I now stand at 4,721.51 miles. That leaves me 278.49 miles short of 5,000. I got the big idea that I was going to do five miles on Saturday, and I did do them, but let's just say that was the outside limit. Well, let me ask you a of question. what I need to be doing. Let me ask you a question. When you're doing this outside, if people call on to you and say, here comes reckless wave at him, or there goes that crazy Houston kid. You see, <laughs> you see people out there and they wave at you. Know, how are they oh. reacting? How are they reacting? Well, that's just a natural thing. I mean, people all the time tell me that they've seen me walking in town or running in town and, I always apologize for subjecting them to that site. <laughs> but yeah, I've had more than one person stop to ask me if I need some help. <laughs> Have they ever asked you if you're trying to emulate Forrest Gump? <laughs> <laughs> well, they know that about me already. So, right. uh, but yeah, Saturday, that last mile or so, that was pretty tough. This coming Saturday, I might try five again but I may back it down to four. 
four and a half, just based off how I feel this week. I got to get to my 5,000. Also, don't forget about our Zoom calls on Thursdays at 7 p.m. Last week, we had Steve Mill on the call. Steve Mill just calls it like he sees it. And that's what everybody responded to. If you would like to reserve a spot on the call, just email us at seenbought at yahoo.com and we will get you hooked up with the invitation. That's seen, S-C-E-N-E-B-A-U-L-T at yahoo.com and we'll get you hooked up with the invitation. Yeah, come join us. You'll have a lot of fun. Steve, next week, episode 100, baby. All right, the century mark. We have reached it. Crap, it's hot in here. (laughs) (laughs) Crap, it's hot in here. (laughs) (laughs) Crap, it's hot in here. (laughs) Ha <laughs>